The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. Okay. All right. Well, we're, we are um, here to talk about uh, 1 Samuel to continue the Old Testament survey class. This is, I think, the fourth time that Frank and I have taught through this together. I don't know if that's right, but I think it's right. 2006 to 2007 was the year I got back from California from seminary, and we taught through it for the first time. At Baraka. Uh-huh, that's right. Yes. 2014 to 15, I think we taught it again. So after eight years, we decided to go through it again. When we started Grace Bible Church in 2018, it was the second Sunday school class we did, so from 2018 to 2019, and now again. So this is the fourth time we've taught through it. And I sent David this, my note, my slides, and uh, he, if you have your slides on your phone, you'll notice that he replaced the uh, logo with our nice new logo. Uh, but I, I said, hey, I just, just for today, I just want you to go back just so we can uh, see. This was our original logo uh, back in the day and the first time we taught through this at Grace, third time total. So that was our old logo. Not near as nice as the one that we have now, but, but nice. Um, now, the next slide uh, is from April 2021. Uh, which, again, I, I don't know that you'll remember that, and that's okay because I will teach through something very similar in a couple of weeks when we do Kings, three weeks from now. Um, but it was something that I shared in Sunday school back in April of 2021, and there were three principles, three facts, I think I called them, uh, that were important when interpreting Old Testament narratives, Old Testament books, the Bible in general, um, but especially uh, the Old Testament. And those three facts were the Hebrew Bible is ordered differently and numbered differently than the English Bible. We have the same books, exact same books, but they're ordered differently and numbered differently. And that will become important in our study of Samuel and Kings. Second, Hebrew texts are often arranged chiastically or in chiasms, which just means um, that the structure of them is such that they might introduce a topic, go to a new topic, go to a new topic, then come back and cover those topics again in reverse. That's really important in the study of Old Testament books, Hebrew literature. And third, uh, that context spans books sometimes. The context of a writing, a, a Bible book, will span that book itself. For instance, um, when you're studying Kings, you need to be thinking about what came before in Samuel and Judges etc. And I'm going to give some examples of that. It's really important. There's, there's different ways to approach studying the Bible. All are valid and all are good. We, we do exposition on Sunday mornings, right, where we go in detail through books of the Bible in order, looking at the details, really trying to mine out as much as we can. There's systematic theology where you take a topic and you try to go around the Bible everywhere that that topic is discussed and you try to go deep on that topic. And then there's biblical theology, which is, I want to understand the Bible in its progression over time. And that's really, when we talk about Old Testament survey, that's what we're doing. And in that in particular, although in general it's important, in that in particular, it's really important to think about connections between books, to see the, the flow and progress of Revelation over time. So as I start to teach a little bit through Old Testament <coughs> survey, I thought that I would give some examples of that. That's the third point up here again. Uh, that context spans books. And let me just give some examples of authors, biblical authors, being aware of previously written writings. And you see it all throughout. In fact, we don't see it as much as we should. But let me give some examples that are very explicit that would encourage us in this way to think even more. So in Second Peter 3, so this was all within the, you know, a few decades of the New Testament being written. Peter is writing, and he references Paul, Paul's writings, and he calls them scripture. So even in the span of, what, a decade or two decades, as Paul's writing early letters, and then as Peter comes behind and says, hey, Paul's written some things that people twist, just like they do the other scriptures. So Peter is aware of Paul's writing when he's writing his letter. And Daniel, as Daniel gives that amazing prophecy of the 70 weeks and that lays out the future, 
uh, of what's going to happen down to the date of Christ coming into Jerusalem, he, that starts by him opening up the scroll of Jeremiah and seeing what Jeremiah had had to say and seeing that he had, uh, and God through Jeremiah had talked about these desolations that were going to come upon Jerusalem in the time of those desolations. Daniel was aware of the writings of Jeremiah and was using them as he was uh, receiving prophecy himself and writing his work himself. There's bunches of these examples. Luke uh, famously introduces his gospel, referencing others that had done the same as him, who had written about Jesus and his works. Uh, 1 Timothy, uh, he says the scripture he's talking about here, he's talking about uh, pastors being able to be paid for what they do. And he references two scriptures. He says, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it's treading grain. Where's that from? I don't mean in general, but big picture. The law, yep, the law. Maybe Deuteronomy, I actually don't know, but somewhere in the law, one of those books. And the laborer is worthy of his wages. That's from the Gospels. So uh, Timothy, excuse me, Paul in writing to Timothy is referencing the Gospels, or at least the oral traditions of Christ, one or the other. Uh, Ezra in Second Chronicles. Second uh, Chronicles ends with the same text that Ezra begins. There's another example of that in Amos and Joel. Uh, separate authors writing to separate people, um, but again, referencing other texts that have come before them. A couple more examples. Uh, I'm going to show a little bit more detail on these. Hosea and, and the Ten Commandments, which came before, and then Psalm 89 and 2 Samuel 7. All these are just a bunch of examples. It doesn't matter if you remember any of them, but hopefully as a collection you see, okay, hey, the Bible is not 66 individual books. It's one book. With It'd almost be better if we referred to the books as chapters. Uh, it's, it's, it's almost like they're chapters of a bigger book. And they have one author in God. And uh, even in situations likely when the authors didn't realize connections that were made to other books. Again, I don't know that uh, in the 12, what we call the minor prophets, there's structure across those individual authors. There's a structure across those 12 books. So either an editor came behind them and did that, or God superintended uh, the way that those books were written. I don't know which one that is, but uh, e even when authors weren't you know, explicitly aware that they were referring to other books, there are connections between these bo Bible books because there is ultimately one author, God. So these I won't spend a lot of time on, but again, just two more examples before we get into Samuel. And this is important because uh, I'm going to explain some connections between Samuel and Judges that may not be obvious on the surface, but are, but are real. Um, so here's an example where Hosea is contending with the people for their lack of knowledge, for their poor behavior. And you can tell he's, not, he's specifically and explicitly referring back to the Ten Commandments as he begins to contend with the people. Similarly, if you read Psalm 89, which is a later writing, uh, talking about David and the Davidic covenant, it's very clear that that author of Psalm 89 had access to the writings of Samuel or Chronicles and, and the story of God making a covenant with David. I'll let you look at those at your leisure to see how closely they're related. Now, that is important because as we start 1 Samuel and as we think about biblical theology and a survey of the Old Testament, <clears throat> We have to think about what's come before, both in the Pentateuch, the Torah that Frank has taught, but also Joshua, and especially Judges, as we get into Samuel. Now, I, I mentioned that the location or, or the order of the Hebrew Bible is different than the order of our English Bible. The number of books is different. All the same content, just numbered and ordered differently. And you guys, this is not the first time you've heard it. Um, but there's benefit to either, either order. And I just want to you know, give some props to the English Bible before I talk about why the Hebrew ordering is important as well. In the he English Bible, as we studied, it was Joshua, Judges, Ruth, first and second Samuel. And there's some really good things about that. Um, it's good to have Ruth right after the book of Judges because Ruth took place in the period of the Judges. And it's good to have Ruth right before first Samuel because it ends with a story of Obed and Jesse and then David, which is the key character in the book of Samuel. So there's some really good things about the way that our English Bible 
is ordered. But there's some good things about the way the Hebrew canon is ordered as well. If you th in just a moment, I'm going to show you some really important connections between Judges and Samuel that help us to understand the book. And there's no disconnect between them in the Hebrew canon. There's not a book in between them. It's You flip one page from right to left in the Hebrew. You flip one page and you go from Judges, end of Judges, right in to the book of Samuel. And that's going to be really important. I'll just put up a couple things. You see that the end of Judges, remember those awful five chapters that there's a Sodom and Gomorrah incident and there's people stealing land and uh, worshiping idols and stealing the Levite to come serve. You know, there's just these awful intra-tribe intra warfare, civil war. Uh, all, a lot of that story happens in Shiloh. And, and sure enough, the beginning of Samuel is all centered around Shiloh as well. So it's good to have that connection. Similarly, uh, when you think about the Hebrew canon, Ruth is in what's called the writings. We'll get into all these in more detail later. Uh, but Ruth's in the writings. The writings aren't always consistently ordered in the Hebrew canon. They always start with Psalms, but the ordering afters can, be, can differ. Uh, but Ruth is often after Proverbs in the writings. Why would that be a good connection? How does Proverbs end? Yeah, Proverbs 31 woman, and Ruth is a great example of an excellent and noble woman in that way. This is all more than you need to know and stuff that we'll cover in the future weeks, but the important part here is that in the Hebrew canon, and regardless, even in English, if you have Ruth intervening, it's really going to be important for us to see a connection between Judges and Samuel and between Exodus and Samuel, and I'm going to cover that right now. So that's the point of, of what I've said so far. And that's the point of this slide. It's just there's connections that we need to be seeing and that we need to understand that the authors uh, expect you to see. The author of Samuel expects you to be familiar with the, with the writings of the Torah, Joshua, and Judges. So we're going uh, to talk through, especially the first part of Samuel, to show that connection. But at a very high level, before we do that, Frank has taken us through the Torah. He's taken us through, especially Deuteronomy. God has made these promises. He's covenanted with the nation. Joshua, the book of Joshua that Frank took us through, God has been faithful to them in giving the land. Israel ultimately proved unfaithful. They didn't take the land that they were supposed to. To the end where Joshua is going off the scene and he charges uh, the nation to honor the Lord and to be faithful to the Lord. But in Judges, clearly that didn't happen. The very beginning of Judges begins with an introduction that they were worshiping idols and this cycle was going to take place where they would repent, turn to the Lord, the judge would deliver them, but then after the judge passed on the scene, they'd fall back in. That happened seven times in the book of Judges, a downward spiral uh, as it got worse and worse until you got to the last five chapters of Judges. And as I mentioned, it was a lot like Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, that's the dreadful appendix, the last five chapters, Judges 17 to 21. And those are some of the stories in Judges. So that's what that's at a high level what's the expectation of the author of Samuels that we, the author of Samuels expects us to know about as we get into the story of 1 Samuel. And as we enter the story of 1 Samuel, we're immediately introduced to who? Hannah. That's right, we're immediately introduced to Hannah, and Hannah is childless, and you guys know that story well, and Hannah is uh, grief-stricken because she has no child and desires that, and she's praying to the Lord at Shiloh, at the tabernacle. Eli thinks she might be drunk, uh, but she's praying out of the desperation of her heart to have a child, and God gives her a child, and this child, he, she hears Hannah's prayer, and the word Samuel is a play on that hearing, and is given a child who she names Samuel. Now, here's where it's really important for you to understand the connections between what has come before in this story, because there are a lot of connections between Samuel's birth narrative, Samuel's raising, his rearing, and the, books, the book of Judges and the Judges that came before him. Let me point out some. You might... Take just a minute and think if you can think of any connections. 
especially with the last judge we just read about, who was Samson. Can you think of any, just in your mind, and then I'll go to it, but just think about Samson and his coming on the scene, and then Samuel and his coming on the scene. Because the author of Samuel expects you to see some connections. Well, both, <clears throat> they came out the same way. Both their, mar their mothers were barren. That's right. And then they both made a vow to God that if they, he gave them a son, Samson was, took the Nazarite vows, and then um, Sam, uh, Samuel's mother said that she would give him to the Lord. Consecrate him to the Lord. That's yes. right. And <clears throat> both were instructed uh, about wine, right? There were stories about right. wine. Uh, in the one case, Hannah was accused of being inebriated. In the other case, uh, Samson's mother and father, right. yeah, don't, don't drink. So here, here are some of these. Uh, the way the stories are introduced. Uh, there was a certain man from Ramathath, let me get these all up here. There was a certain man from Ramathath Zophim whose name was Manoah. There was a certain man from Zorah, his name was, so the, the two stories, if you're paying attention, you'd say, hey, that sounds like what I just read. Uh, the barrenness uh, that Andre just mentioned, uh, their names are very similar in, in Hebrew. I know Samson and Samuel, even in, yeah, even in uh, English, we can hear that similarity and then the vow that Andre mentioned. So there, it, you know, there's an expectation that as you read Samuel, you think, ah, okay, this is the next judge. We've had seven judges. Things are spiraling downhill, and this is the next judge. Samson, excuse me, Samuel is the next judge. And then what happens? Okay, so that was 1 Samuel 1 through 3. Um, again, uh, Samuel's given to the Lord. He's serving Eli there in the tabernacle. And then, uh, what would we, let me ask it differently. Forget what, for just a moment, what's in 1 Samuel. If indeed the author expects you to think of him as the next judge, what were some of the things we heard about uh, in the judge's story when a new judge would be introduced? What would happen? An invasion? Yeah, there'd be some kind of oppression, invasion, right? There'd be a, a foreign enemy. Uh, there would be wickedness of the people that was bringing the Lord to do that. There'd be an invasion. Then what other things would we have happen? They'd cry out for help, and what would what would happen? God would raise up a judge to help. Him. Yeah. So this judge, what would how would he help? What would he do? Military delivery. Yeah, they'd, they'd fight, right? Whether it's Ehud with his double-edged sword, or whether it was Barak with Deborah's help, you know, fighting against Sisera, whatever the mechanism, and Samson's was very strange uh, and not straightforward, but whatever the mechanism, there would be physical warfare, there would be battle, and then there would be a turning. And so, sure enough, we're not disappointed after the story of uh, Samson, Samuel in the tabernacle. We hear about the wickedness of Eli's sons. We see that there's wickedness. And sure enough, the Philistines this time are the invading army. They come in chapters 4 to 6, and they have battle with Israel. Only it's different this time. Samson is not like Ehud or Othniel or Barak. Samson doesn't get his sword and lead in the battle. In fact, they don't even win the battle. The Philistines take the Ark of God and bring it back to Philistia, and the Israelites are defeated. So it's different. Yes, Kathleen? I keep saying Samson, yeah. Samuel, thank you. Samuel. This is uh, a little, I'll just pull back the curtain for a second and say this is the fourth time I've taught it, and I'm a little bit uh, winging it today. So I'm, I'm, I don't know where I am in my notes, and uh, <laughs> uh, so I just kind of let you know what's going on in my mind right now. So um, all that to say, yeah, so Samuel uh, doesn't strap on his sword, doesn't go to the battle. They're defeated. The ark is taken to Philistia. And that's where we know, hey, something different. This is a little bit different. Like, okay, you were, it seemed like we were going to introduce another judge. Something different's happened. And so we've got to stop and, and, and ask ourselves, okay, what's happening? What is the story that's being told here? And as you do that, you think, you know, Samuel, is, he's got some echo, his stories have echoes of another character besides Samson. There was another character that was like uh, this, who um, 
was called out to multiple times, Samuel, Samuel, here I am, you know, and there was a fire burning uh, by his bed there, and there was, uh, there was another character in Israel's past that was called out to like that, and was, was told about what was going to happen next to a fire um, that, did, that wasn't going out. There's, I see people, I see people, yeah, uh, whispering, and, and there was similarities in what was happening with the ark. As the ark went back, uh, there were similarities to the Exodus that you might think about. Like, you know, the, the judgments, the plagues on the gods of Egypt, uh, they were all designed around Egypt's gods to show the Lord's superiority over him. And lots of weird things happening, right? And sure enough, you know, as the ark is out in Egypt, in captivity, as it were, in slavery, as it were, you know, the the fish god, Dagon, he's falling over over the threshold and things are breaking off and people are getting tumors. What does that sound like? Right? Sounds like the boils and things that were happening in the plagues. And then the people are going to be uh, sent out, or God in the ark is going to be sent out from Philistia. And what's going to go with it? Do you remember what they put with it? Treasures. Right? What does that sound like? Do you remember remember the Exodus? Yeah, like, hey, ask for things. And they took, they, they plundered the people as they went out. So we're beginning to hear themes not of Samson, this, call it, worst of the seven judges. Again, it, it sort of spiraled downhill from Jephthah to Samson. You're beginning to hear echoes of Moses. And in fact, as they come back, there's another battle. And this time, the Israelites win. But again, Samson is not acting like Jephthah. He's not acting like Ehud. He's not acting like Barak or Othniel. He's acting more like Moses. So what was Moses doing in the battle as they left Egypt? He was like either cheerleader, kind of encouraged. He was going to Pharaoh, too. But no, no, no. After they left and the Amalekites are fighting and they, they're... He's raising his hands. He's raising his hands, right? He's raising his hands. And what happens when his hands are raised? And then what happens when his hands are, are down? Well, is that, is, is Mo, are Moses' hands related to the military might of Israel in that way? Is there some physical property like gravity or something? No, there's no, what does that mean? Why, why? why is it that when his hands were up, they were winning? And when they're, That's what God told him to do. And it is. And what does it represent? Reaching for God. Yeah, it's like, okay, this is when his hands are up, God is fighting for us when they're not. And, and so who's fighting that battle? Is it Joshua? God. It's God. God is fighting for the Israelites, right? What about when the second time when the ark has been brought back and the Philistines attack again? Where is Samuel? Do you remember? He's offering sacrifices. He's offering sacrifices. And how does the battle win? How is the battle fought? Do y'all remember? This is in like chapters 4 to 6. There's a great earthquake that kills many of the Philistines. And, and, and it's very clear, or at least the author of Samuel expects you to, to see this, that this is God fighting for Israel. This is not just the next judge in the line of judges. This is after the dreadful appendix, after Israel behaved like Sodom and Gomorrah, after they had civil war, after they did all that, God is fighting for them. He's fighting for them the way he did for them when they left Egypt. In fact, if you go back, the, the book of Judges was uh, what I, in seminary, when, when we covered the book of Judges, and they showed me the chiasm that was in the book of Judges on the seven judges, I, was, I just remember distinctly going, wow, that is amazing. What is that? And, you know, it's like, it, and I was a poor seminary student, and I went and bought this book. Because I just, it was not even required reading. I was like, I have got to, what does that mean? That's really cool. And, you know, there is a, a structure to the seven judges in the book of Judges among the judges. And the centerpiece is Gideon. Gideon is the center judge there. And Gideon's story, uh, you think about, I, I wrote this down, I don't know where, because again, I'm not in my notes. There are several things in Gideon's story that will help clarify this even more as well. Think about uh, Gideon. Um, Turn to Judges 7 just really quick. Think about Gideon, again, this, this central of the judges, and think about his story in chapter 7. Um, 
Is it chapter 7? No, it's chapter 6 when he's introduced. And Gideon is, um, they're being oppressed by the Midianites. They're, they're brought low, verse 6. They're crying to the Lord. It came about, verse 7, when the sons of Israel cried to Yahweh because of Midian, that Yahweh sent a prophet. And he said to them, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, It was I who brought you up from Egypt and brought you out from the house of slavery. Slavery. I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians, from the hands of your oppressors, and dispossessed them before you and gave them your land. So you don't have to be afraid. I'm Yahweh who did all of that. So in this story of Gideon, you see this reference to the Exodus. And I love the way Gideon answers. Let me find it. Um, verse 13. I mean, it's a very honest answer, a very real answer. As, as he's called to be the leader, Gideon says, If Yahweh's with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his miracles which we've been told about? Yahweh brought us out of the hand of Egypt, but look, Yahweh's abandoned us. So he says, I remember the stories. I've heard all the stories of how we got out in the Exodus, but we don't have those now, right? And God, sure enough, would still deliver them through the hand, but not through great earthquakes and not through plagues and the, and the like that he had done through Egypt. So in the story, the centerpiece of the judges, you see this reference to the Exodus. And I won't turn there, but just do you remember after Gideon wins his victory, what they try to do to Gideon? Make him king, right? They try to make him king. And what does Gideon say? No, uh-uh. God is king. Uh-uh. No, 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 no. That's not, we're not going to go there. Those are really important stories, both the reference to Exodus and, and Gideon's uh, proposed kingship are going to be really important to us as we get into Samuel. And hopefully that just continues to solidify this story that I'm telling. So in 1 Samuel 4 through 6, 4 through 7, I think it is, um, it's very clear that we're back to the Exodus days. Sam, Samson is, yeah, he's a judge and once, Samson, I keep saying it, correct me. Yeah, he wrote it on a Samuel, David's got it on a big piece of paper. He's going to help me. Samuel is a judge. In one sense, he's been raised up for such a time as this, like the judges. But in another sense, he is not like those seven judges. He is like Moses. And the, the time period is like Moses, and God is fighting for the people, and something new is happening. And Gideon, if Gideon were alive in that time, he couldn't say, where are the, if God's with us, where are all the miracles? He couldn't say that because they're there. He's he, earthquake, defeating the Philistines, Samuel sacrificing to the Lord, and God's winning the battle for them. And that's the first seven chapters of Samuel. There are three key chapters in Samuel, and verse, excuse me, chapter 8 is the first of those. What does Israel do at this point? They ask for a king to be like the other nations. Now, we read Hosea 13. We don't often read in our, early, in our scriptures in the beginning of services from, from prophets. We usually read from Psalms. But we read, and y'all heard in there, how angry this made God. He gave them a king in his anger. Where's your, oh, you wanted a king, where's he? Let him help you. You know, this was, a, this was a rejection of God. And you can see it if you think about the story in that way. God had showed up for them as their king. He had showed up for them, and he had won the battle for them, and he was declaring himself as with them through the ministry of Samuel. And they said, uh, we kind of like it the way it was. We like having kings, we like having earthly kings, and we'll take one like the other nations, please. I mean, it's a crazy thing to think about if you would have been there and seen that. Similar to those people who made the golden calf. I mean, it's amazing. After you had gone through, you'd walked through dry land, you'd seen all that, and you'd, you'd say, this is the God who took you out of Egypt. This is the God who brought you out. Like, again, we do stupid things too. I'm not throwing them under the bus. We do really stupid things ourselves. But it was the wrong thing to do, and it made God angry. God was their God. Gideon had it right. Gideon didn't even have the miracles, and he got it right. Here the miracles are happening. They're being delivered. It's Exodus-like, and they say, no, we don't want God. We want a king. So God, according to Hosea 13, says, okay, or according to Romans 1, I'll give you what you want. I'll give you a king if that's what you want. But this is a really important chapter 
uh, in the book of Samuel. Israel rejects God in a very clear way. Now, this is where we need to continue to see connections to judges. And this is astounding to me. This is one of the neatest things, if neat is an okay word. I know that's sort of an older word. One of the neatest things that I think are in the Bible. So God's going to give them a judge, a, a king. You got, can you give me another card? God's going to give them a king, right? And so who's that first king? Saul is going to be the first king, right? And tell me a little bit about that story. So Saul, how do we, how are we introduced to Saul? Well, the thing with Saul is that he was, I think the big mistake that the Israel made is that we want a king like other nations. Since other nations all had kings that were corrupt and, and evil kings, he said, you want a king like them? Okay, I'll give you a king like them. And Saul ended up being a failure as well. So when we, but when we hear about Saul, when we uh, are introduced to him, what's happening? He's looking for, it's not, you say sheep? I think that's because we talked about sheep so much. I think he's looking for donkeys. Donkeys. Yes. Milton and I had a long conversation about sheep during the break, so sheep are on our mind. But he was looking for donkeys. He's out looking for donkeys. And what happens? Do they find him? You can just say. So, no, they don't, right? Kathleen. And he seeks the Lord's help. Yeah, so they don't find him, and Saul says, look, Dad's going to be worried about me. Let's go back. Let's go back home. And, and, but he's got a friend with him, right? He's got a servant with him. And what does the servant say? Let's go to the prophet. Hey, there's a man of God. There's a man of God in this city. Let's go and see this man of God, and he can help us maybe. I don't know. What will we bring him, right? And they talk about So he goes. He goes to the man of God. Now, I would ask you, let me make it hard first, then I'll make it easier after. Can you think of a story in the book of Judges like that? That's, this is hard, but I'll, make it, I'll, I'll give you a cheat in just a second if nobody thinks of one. Well, I don't want Gideon, right? No. Well, let's say it, because maybe I'm wrong, but that's not the one I'm thinking of. Well, there was a prophet that came in that case. That's true. But think about, let me give you a cheat. Think about people looking for something, searching for something in the book of Judges, and they say, hey, there's a man of God in here. Do you remember that story? No? Think about the, it's the last five chapters. You know? Is it where, like, they, they get that priest? Yes. Remember the priest, the Levite? Oh, yeah. Remember the guy that stole the... They're looking for land. Who's looking for land? The Danites. The Danites don't have a place. And so they're out. We need to go find a place. We need to go find some land. And they're out looking. Hey, there's a man of God in here, right? So maybe at first you'll say, Matt, that's a stretch. That's a bit of a stretch to connect Saul looking for donkeys with that. But let's, let's go further. Let me, let me give you some other examples here. So... Do you remember um, the Sodom and Gomorrah incident where the concubine, he went back to get his concubine? I call it the Sodom and Gomorrah incident because he's clearly referencing Sodom and Gomorrah. At the end of Judges, there's a Levite. His concubine has left him. He goes, gets him back. The guy, I think it's the concubine's father, keeps telling him, delay, 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 delay. Finally, the, I got to go. It's dark. They say, let's go to this town, Gibeah, and then they uh, mistreat, they uh, rape this concubine she dies and you remember they uh, cuts her up and sends it out to all the other tribes that city that Sodom and Gomorrah city is Gibeah well guess where Saul's from he's from Gibeah that's his hometown that's where Saul's from now when the tribes come together they assemble at a, a town called Mizpah they cast lots or who's going to go up first to fight against these wicked Benjamites who did that? So Saul has a similar story early in his, uh, when he's introduced, where um, the, I think it's the Ammonites, and again, I'm, I'm shooting from the hip here, I'm sorry. It's the Ammonites, I believe, who are attacking Jabesh Gilead, Gilead and uh, they say, hey, 
you know, we're, you want to surrender, we'll pluck out. Your right eye or one of your eyes. Yeah, I'm so, I, like, I feel like I have 80% of the story. I'm sorry. But, yeah, we're going to do this to you. I don't remember exactly what it is. Uh, we're going to do this to you. Uh, and they say, hey, give us a day to call for help. And if not, we'll surrender. Right? And so Saul gets that, and they assemble at Mizpah, and they uh, inquire of the Lord there via, via lots in the same way. And you'll remember when Saul hears that, he's out on the plow. He's behind the oxen. He's, he's plowing a field. He hears about it. He gets off the plow. What does he do? What is he? He kills him. And then what? He, breaks he cuts it up. He cuts it up and does what with it? No, one of them, I think. I may be mixing stories, but he, say it again. He sends it. He, he cuts the ox into pieces. He sends it out to the tribes and says, if you don't show up to defend, this is what's going to happen to you. Is that right? Is that, am I, right? Well, what does that sound like? It sounds like the cutting up of the concubine. All these things, which again, maybe you'd say, hey, they're separate books, Matt. I think you're just making it up. Like, but remember, that's why I showed you all those examples. The Bible refers to itself. You know, there's, there's progress, and the author expects you to know. Uh, I forget what the stat is in Revelation, but it's like more than half the verses refer to other parts. I mean, the Bible does this, and it's really important. And in this case, the author is expecting us to tie Saul to that awful, dreadful appendix. He's making a connection between the two. So they've asked for a king, and God has given, a, given them a king. And he's given them a king who is from Gibeah and who has the character uh, that is going to lead to, to bad things in the same way that Judges 17 through 21 was an explanation of all the bad things that were happening in the Judges. So first, chapter 8 is a, is a key uh, chapter as they reject God, and then God's judgment, as it were, to them is Saul's kingship. Saul becoming king. He gives them a king. Samuel explains that, just as Andre said, uh, it's not just going to be the nations that are oppressing you now. Your own king is going to be taxing you and taking the best of your children and the best of your lands. and um, It's going to be oppression from the inside. But this is a really key chapter as well, and that's chapter 12. And we'll see this next week particularly when we talk about the different covenants that tie all this together, um, similar to Frank's covenants class. But God makes a promise of grace to them. Despite what they've done, despite they've rejected him, God comes down in a theophany. You remember a theophany is just comes from theos, which is the Greek word for God, and phaneo, which is the Greek word for appearing or manifesting. So it's God appearing. It's like uh, you know, an, a thunder and lightning and storm, you know, the kind of things that happen when God shows up. And that's what you have in 1 Samuel 12. And he says, don't fear. Even though you've done wrong in doing this, you shouldn't have asked for a king. I'm your king, but I'll work it out. As long as you have a king that doesn't... And it's amazing. God had already promised this in Deuteronomy 17. He had already made provision for it, um, which is pretty impressive. Could you speak to that a little bit? I know we've had this conversation before, but on the one hand, all the way back to Abraham, he says, there will be kings come forth from you. And then, like you said, he makes provision in Deuteronomy 17. Even there, he says, when you enter the land and you want a king like the nations, so he anticipates it there. And then so much of the story after this is about the king and yeah. the Messiah. How, how do we square that up? I would square it, it. Sometimes it's easy to go back to the very beginning and make analogies there. But, like, you know, God made lots of plans for the salvation of the world and the glorification of himself through Christ's death. And it doesn't mean what Adam and Eve did, though he had planned for it, it was, was right or good. But God knew it, had planned for it, and it was a part of his plan. Similarly here, it was awful for them to ask for a king. The ideal would have been that God would have remained their king. That's right. That's right. But God was preparing, planning, and used that wicked request to glorify his son as a true God-man, king on earth, 
um, and amazing that, you know, again, God knows those things from the beginning. He uses our wickedness to glorify himself, and that was wicked, and yet he says, hey, if, you, if your king will fear me, if your king will listen, it's all going to be okay. I'm not rejecting you. I'll still show you grace. Um, and so uh, that's where 1 Samuel 12 is really important, a chapter of grace to the nation. So then in three of the hardest chapters in the entire book, I've not taken the time. I want to. I've just not had the time. It's really hard to understand these chapters. You'll remember that Saul is told, uh, you need to wait seven days, You're, and, you know, and then I will come, I'll show you what to do, and then all kinds of things intervene in between. You know, and then finally, you see Saul offering a sacrifice, and if you're not careful, you don't realize that's what he was saying. He was saying, wait, but he waited almost the whole time, but then he's like, ah, oh, there's too much pressure, I gotta do something, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make a sacrifice, and he forces his hand and does it, and, uh, and God says, hey, you didn't do what I asked. You didn't wait, you weren't patient, and uh, you're, you're out. You're exactly right, you're out as king, no, I'm going to find someone else uh, to be king. And that's the last key chapter is David. David is shown up as the one who will be the king after God's own heart. He is as different from Saul as Samuel is from Samson. So yes, he's a king. He's like Saul in that. Just like Samuel, yes, was a judge. He was like Samson in that. But no, David is very different than Saul. He is the anointed one, the Messiah, as it were, the same word, uh, that is going to come and show what it means to really be a king after God's own heart. And the rest of 1 Samuel is dedicated after, excuse me, after David defeats the Philistines, is, is dedicated to David's fleeing from Saul. That's a ton of chapters on that. Uh, in the end, Saul dies, and we'll see in 2 Samuel 7 that God makes a promise to David. Now, as we think about the purpose of Samuel, I want you to consider those three chapters. Uh, David showed a little bit of the uh, behind the scenes, how he determines themes, right? You saw through all those mind maps, and, you know, Here's how I can. Here's how what comes to the top, what the letter is about. And so, as we look at these key themes, these turning points, we can kind of get a feel for the purpose of Samuel. And I have that on the next slide, um, which is Israel had a wicked request for a king, but God in Samuel, First Samuel particularly, responds in grace to that wicked request, and He marks David as the one through whom He will continue to pour out His blessing. So Israel has gotten to a new low in asking for a king. And yet God will meet them still there. So it was bad enough at the golden calf where they substituted or uh, made a proxy to God. I mean, they said, the words they say in the golden calf is, this is Yahweh who brought you out. So it was wrong. That's not Yahweh. He doesn't look like that. He's not gold. He doesn't have to be carried. That's not God. But at least, you know... At least they, they were referring to the God who brought them out. Here they're saying, no, we'd rather have a king than, than you. We don't, we don't want. And there's some good to that. I mean, we talk about Moses when he's on the mountain. And, and they said, yeah, we don't, want, we don't want to hear from God. Give us somebody. Give us a mediator. Like God said, hey, that's good. I appreciate you fearing me. It's right for you to recognize that, uh, that I'm glorious. And you, you might need a mediator. You know, that's not a bad thing. But in this case, to your point earlier, Andre, this is not. This is, yeah, we, we kind of like the old days when we had a, a, a person, a, a king. We don't, we don't want to have to depend on you and earthquakes and things like that. I think, man, earthquakes, that's a pretty, pretty good weapon, you know. <laughs> but no, that's not. They rejected God. He responds in grace. He, he goes lower than they go. He gets underneath them. He continues to support them in grace. They will go lower. Uh, they will, in Ezekiel, they will say, you know what, okay, we'll take a God, but we want a different God. You know, we, we want a God like the nations. So they give him lower, and God will support them in that. That'll be the end. It'll, he'll change course a little in terms of how he treats them, but he'll say in Ezekiel, no, no, I will be your God. 
I will be, and I'll do it out of love, not in a you know, spiteful way. I will love you. I'll show how great my grace and my love is. But no, I won't allow that. He'll give it to them. He'll let them go serve gods and other nations, just like he gave them a king here. But ultimately, it's like, no. And then the lowest they go, obviously, is when God himself comes, himself comes, and then they crucify him. But God goes lower still and will not reject Israel even with that. So key themes, sorry, that was a bit of a, a sidebar. Um, and, and again, just notes on how this purpose statement comes um, that God uses, and that was, we spoke about that in answer to Frank's question. God uses this evil intent for his own purposes. It's already been foreordained. Frank mentioned, or we talked about Deuteronomy 17, Hannah, or you talked about, excuse me, Abraham, there'll be kings that come from you. Hannah talks about that. Hannah talks about kingship. You see it in Judges. Uh, but this purpose statement is meant to highlight those three key chapters. And, and what the purpose, I think, of the book is, is to show God's grace in that. Okay, themes. These should be easy. Kingship, it's all about kings. This is the big theme of 1 Samuel. I'll, I'll put up some of the subpoints there um, that we talked about. God is the true king in reality. Um, but he will use this kingship for his own glory. He will... In grace, he'll respond to the request, and he had already foreordained it. He knew about it. This was not a surprise to him. Divine reversal. Um, you know, again, just even in the Samson Samuel story, we're just we're just going downhill, downhill, and it's no, we're back to the top. God has changed things. He's made it more like Moses, uh, Hannah in her song. You know, she's the one that's um, uh, belittled and mocked by, I think it was Penina. Uh, I can't remember. Penina was the other one. Um, but God reverses that. And he, he gives Hannah seven children. Uh, he gives Hannah Samuel, this, this Moses-like judge. Saul and David, you know, David will not put his hand out to strike the Lord's anointed. But God will reverse it. He'll change things. Saul will die an inglorious death at his own hand, by his own sword. And David, despite being only on the run with a ragtag group of followers will be exalted to be king. In fact, we'll see next Sunday, exalted forever to be king, as his posterity at least. And again, the trend of judges, and again, how we just see the change there. Um, major characters, you can name them. Who, who are the major characters? Samuel. <laughs> Samuel. <laughs> who else? Samson. No, Samson's not in it. Samuel, Saul, David. Uh, I, I don't think I have Hannah on here, and I should. She, she's a major character in the front, and similar to Mary, you know, in, in the way that you know she shows up in the life of Christ, and the magnificent, magnificent, and, and Mary, uh, excuse me, Hannah's prayer. So Samuel, David, and Saul. We talked about that. Um, Samuel is the last and greatest judge, but he's more than that. He's a prophet, like, kind of like Moses. Uh, I wanted to be careful to say like unto Moses because that language is reserved for Christ. Deuteronomy, when he talks about raising up another prophet like unto Moses, it's, it's a reference to Christ. Um, he's a priest, and he's blameless. No one can, can say anything. I mean, he talks to the whole nation. Hey, anybody, whatever you want to say, you tell me. What did I do wrong? Who, who did I defraud? Who did I steal from? No, no claim. He's blameless. Um, David and Saul. We talked about David. Um, those are things that you guys are all familiar with, and the differences between them, how they're contrasted. The Philistines. Uh, so the we've had different oppressors and judges, the Midianites and Sisera and. Um, but the Philistines are going to show up for a little while and be an important enemy. Um, they are the nemesis of Israel from here forward until Assyria shows up. And, and now everybody quits bickering among themselves in the Levant and they start worrying about the, the fo folks coming from Nineveh. But they're going to be a, a major nemesis of Israel there uh, for Saul, excuse me, for Saul, David, Solomon. Uh, David puts them. Uh, puts an end to them for a while. Solomon has peace, but then the Philistines will continue showing up. Um, and I, I, I give some, some background on that. I'm not going to stop and talk about those right now. 
uh, but they are going to be a key enemy until Assyria, until the 8th century. Okay, time period. Uh, Solomon ruled from 970 onward, and we'll see when we get into kings. That's an important date. There's uh, a way that we can date Solomon's reign, and that helps us date the rest of biblical chronology. So Solomon is a key uh, figure in us knowing when things happened, uh, or at least taking Israel's history and, and putting it on the same timeline as Babylonian or Egyptian history or our own history. Solomon ruled from 970. David was a ruler for 40 years before that, so we can back him up to 1010. And then Saul ruled, according to Acts 13, we'll get into this in just a second, Saul ruled for 40 years. So his reign was around 1050 B.C. So we're just around 1000 B.C. Uh, right now in terms of time. And Samuel was sometime before that. Okay, we'll have three sort of interpretive issues in the book of 1 Samuel. None are major, um, and so we can go through them pretty quickly. But three interpretive issues. The first is 1 Samuel 13. Uh, turn to 1 Samuel 13, 1. And let me put all these different versions up on the screen. So... 1 Samuel 13, so you guys have heard probably in studying, Jen was asking about this last week, the, how, you know, the Bible and where it came from. You, know, you guys have heard about all the manuscripts we have of the Bible and how you, know, you can line them all up. And yeah, there's differences that we use a science called textual criticism to try to understand. But I mean, they're amazingly consistent across thousands of years and, and many manuscripts this is one exception. In fact, 1 Samuel is the worst book in the Bible in terms of manuscript evidence that we have. We have the worst manuscripts uh, for 1 Samuel. Still really good. Still better than any other ancient book. Uh, so I don't mean to paint it in a bad light, but just relative to the rest of the Bible. And we have one verse here that we don't own a manuscript. We haven't found a manuscript with that there. So the literal of 1 Samuel 13.1 is Saul was... It was like a gap one year old when he began to reign, and he ruled over Israel for two years, but the manuscript is hard to decipher. Clearly, he wasn't a one-year-old, and clearly he didn't reign too. I mean, he had a grandson, right? Uh, and so it's just we don't have good. And, and you'll see the different English translations, how they try to uh, smooth that out. Um, we know from Acts 13, I referenced that, that, that God had given Saul for 40 years to Israel. So he reigned 40 years like David. Um, so some translations, like I'm, I've got the NAS right here, have Saul was, and then in italics, 40 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned, and then in italics, 32 years over Israel. I think the ESV, some of you all read the ESV, just puts dot, dot, dot instead of filling in. The two years part clear right there's no gap or hole there no he reigned more than yeah so he reigned more than two years no i understand yeah. but as far as in the manuscript itself, no no it's not clear yeah okay so it's clear that there's the word two there it's not clear what else should be with it and that's where the ns has 32 although acts says he reigned 40 years so it's it's just kind of convoluted but in the slide before that you said you can see where the confusion might have come from it says saul reigned one year in the king james version and when he had reigned two years over israel yeah, so they're trying to kind of... could have, yeah. Yeah, so Saul reigned one year. It's not, it, it, was, um, it was when he began to reign. So they're trying to smooth it out, trying to figure out, everybody's trying to smooth it out. You know, it's, they're just trying to extrapolate from what we know and what's missing. It's, again, not a massive issue, but it's, if anything, it's, uh, it's a neat story to highlight just that, <coughs> hey, this is like the one place in all the Bible where we have this. We have such great support and evidence of this ancient document people it was not easy to preserve documents it was not easy to to keep track of things and and yet people found it important to preserve this document for so long in such an amazing way um, we'll talk about that when we get to Ezra and Nehemiah some of the ways that they did that Do we have any idea how old he was when he committed Harry Carey uh, approximately 80 80? Right, because if he was, if he was a grand, yeah, if he was, he had a grandson sometime in then, uh, so he was maybe my age, and then um, 
you know, reigned 30, 40 years, 70, 80-ish, you know, that, that time frame. So, um, Frank, Samuel. So in 13, when it says Saul was, bracket, 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned, bracket, bracket, two years over Israel, could that have been how long before he gathered together all these men? No. That's a total out. I mean, maybe. Maybe that's what you see some people smarter than me, interpreters who have spent no, their life. Yeah. It could be. And people try to smooth it out that way they and say. try to make it say something that's. Well, it's hard to know what it said because we don't, ha- you know, we don't have it. it so. That's for sure the two years. It, and it, there's the word two in it, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But beyond that, it's. And I've not laid. Here I am talking about it. I've not laid eyes on these manuscripts. So just have read and am reporting to you what I read. So that's, that's one issue. We just don't know how to interpret it because we don't have good manuscript support. A second one, which, again, I don't think we need to spend much time on it. Uh, it's mainly, David was talking today about how some people say, oh, I know it says Paul wrote Timothy, but he didn't really. You know, it was disciples that wrote it. And people did do that, to be clear. There are letters that people would, uh, they're called the pseudographic, pseudographia. I think it, pseudo is false, graphia is writing, false writings, and they would hey, if you really wanted to get your point across, maybe you put the name Peter on it, you know, because it would carry more weight. So it's not that it didn't happen, but these are received texts from the church for, you know, the, I mean, you see the care they took to these. And uh, so, but people will still say, ah, for these reasons, I, I reject all that, and it wasn't Paul who wrote it. Anyways, those are, you know, more progressive liberal theologians that might argue those kind of things. And this interpretive issue is something where some progressive theologians would say, hey, here God lies. God lies in this story, right? And I'll give you a quote of that. But this is the story of after Saul's been rejected as king, um, God says to Samuel, go anoint someone else. I want you to take this flask of oil, I want you to go to Bethlehem, and I want you to anoint one of Jesse's sons. And, and Samuel says, I, I can't do that. It, as soon as Saul hears about that, he'll have my head. And he says, um, that's verse 2, how can, I, how can I go when Saul hears of it? He'll kill me. And Yahweh says, take her heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice Yahweh. So he's clearly going to anoint a king. And God says, well, when Saul asks you what you're doing, say, I'm going to make a sacrifice. Which he did. He did. They, they absolutely did that. They had a meal. They had a sacrifice. But, again, you'll have folks, um, this is not the quote, but... Um, this is just explaining I don't really need that one I don't know why I put it this is the one this may not be a blatant lie authorized by Yahweh because he does take an animal but this is clearly an authorized deception is the way this theologian says Yahweh will lie if necessary to avoid uh, excuse me in order to move the kingship toward David and then later he kind of backs it away he says Yahweh is very close to falsehood for the sake of David but to me it's First of all, God doesn't lie. We, have, we know that. He, he does not lie. He cannot lie. He's not a man that he should lie. And he's not afraid of Saul. You know, he just, but, but I will say this is really, to me, I make this an issue, not because I'm afraid that, oh, does God lie? I need to think about that. No. I, it's interesting to me only in the, you know, the, you, we've read a lot of World War II stuff and you, the Corey Ten Boom type stories. And if someone comes and knocks on your door and says, hey, do you have any, do you have any Jews in here? What do you say? You know, and, um, you know, there was Corey Timboom. That's what I'm going about. That's exactly right. So Corey Timboom had a sister, I think. Some of you may know the story better than me. It's been a long time since we read it, whose conscience wouldn't allow her to do that. And she said, yeah, we do. And the story goes something, you know, they didn't believe or whatever. But, you know, she, she maintained her conscience and didn't lie. And the... The people they were hiding were safe. But I think, you know, as I read about Rahab, as I read about the Hebrew midwives, as I see this, I think more, yeah, I'd say no. I think I would say no in a situation like that. And, um, but so that's the more uh, interpretive thing to wrestle with is what makes that okay? Why does God bless the midwives? Why does God bless Rahab uh, when they deceive, you know? So that's an interesting topic for another time. It's an ethical thing, not an interpretive thing. God does not lie here. 
Samuel does go make a sacrifice. So, and I don't want us to get. I'm going to answer that. I'm going to. I'm going to call on you, but I'm. I'm not going to be able to give a very good ethical treatise on why you can do it and when you do or how that. So. So setting apart their decision to fuss over whether or not God lies, wasn't he just giving Samuel something that took care of his fears so that he could keep going with what God wanted? He said Saul's going to kill me. He said, well. Go do a sacrifice, and Saul won't go after you. Yeah, yeah. He was, he was definitely masking the reason for going, to be sure. Um, and you know, God chose to do that for him. And and again, I think there there are things to learn from that. The midwives masked what they were doing. They and absolutely if did. Thinks they're always telling the whole truth and nothing but the truth. They're defeated deceiving themselves because we always pick and choose yeah. what aspect of the truth and in situations and in situations like Pharaoh killing babies mm -hmm. like uh, hostile city dwellers killing God's chosen people or like God anointing his king that he's going to make a covenant with and his chosen prophet God and there's a crazy man that wants to put him to death because he's a megalomaniac and wants to be the king God seems to allow for the opportunity to not share the whole truth but, but this is and nothing this is but the truth. This is different than the midwives. Because the midwives deliberately were doing what they were told not to do and then lying. Samuel is um, simply saying, Saul's going to kill me. I don't see him as different. I mean, I think Saul would say, like any king, Herod or any king would say, don't you, nobody else is going to take this throne and anything, you know, Big Fan and what's the guy and Esther... Yeah, can, Saul would have definitely killed him. Yeah. I'm not saying a difference in that. I'm saying, yeah. Well, anyways, that's... We won't go into I'm with, yeah, I'm not good at explaining all this. I just pointed out is, uh, is, uh, is something to consider and uh, an issue that some people go too far, like this gentleman, I think. I would not want to author... I would not want to speak those words, Yahweh will lie, if necessary. I wouldn't want those on my account. Okay, and here are some folks that have wrestled with it and probably can explain it better than me if you're interested. They're in the slides. All right, and lastly, another one that I don't like the interpretive issues of 1 Samuel. I don't feel very uh, equipped to speak to any of them or they're not ones that I wrestle with or think, but this is the last one, is the witch of, at Endor, right? And what happened there, right? So you guys know the story just briefly for the kids if they don't or for others that might not know it. So... Saul's really pressed this time, about to lose the battle. God's not answering any of his prayers. What do I do? Samuel's dead. I need help. I'm going to go to this medium. And you guys may not know, you know, medium is like, it's in between a small and a large, right? <laughs> and that's the point of a medium, right? You connect, it's like in between. And like a medium is, you got the living and the dead, right? And they sit in between and they, they help, you know. Connect. Yeah, or, or media, you've heard of media, you know, like CD-ROM, or the media, it's just, you know, here's the information, the content, and here you are, that media is what gets you, or the media, you know, everybody talk about the media these days, you know, are you getting the true story, whatever, but that's the media, medium, media, so all that to say, she, he goes to this medium, to this necromancer, I don't know, necros is the Greek word for death, I don't know what mancer Somebody, yes. somebody who speaks to the dead. I guess speaks to the dead. I don't know the like the origin of that word, but uh, this necromancer, this person that speaks to the dead, he goes to this witch, as she's described, I think, in the King James Version and in popular culture. Goes to the witch of Endor, and I need to talk to Samuel. <coughs> I need help, and she does it, and ah, hey, it's Samuel. <laughs> Samuel says, "Why did you call me up? You know, it's not like it's going to help. You're going to be defeated. You're going to die." And the question is just, what's happening there? Did she actually make contact with a living spirit? Spirit Was it really Samuel? You know, what is it? And again, this is not something I think about a lot. Uh, this is not something that I feel like I'm going to be able to answer questions, direct questions on. But I tend, if, if I just tell you, I tend to think that uh, things like this are possible. I don't understand. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to get into it. Uh, but we know that death is merely the separation of our spirit from our body, right? And our body goes into the ground, but our spirits are not going to end at death, right? And that's true of the wicked. 
It's true of the righteous and the wicked. According to the Bible, the way it describes it, they go to Sheol, they go to the pit, they go to whatever, you know, all that means, and we could talk about that another time, but it seems that you can make contact. And, and again, I, I don't, I'm not interested in this. I don't want to know more about it, but it seems that it happens, and it seems that it happened in this case. It would be my way I read it, and, and this quote is uh, in support of that idea. Um, and it might be, this quote talks about it, it might be that she used to fake it, you know, and this time it worked, <laughs> and it sort of scared her, you know. I don't know. I don't know all that. It's not the point of the text, but it's something that people talk about and find interesting even if I don't. So uh, I will share it, uh, and there's some quotes in there if you'd like to read it, and that comes from a really good commentary on First Samuel in the New American Commentary series by, I think his name is, I don't remember his first name, but Bergen, I think it's Robert. Uh, so that's it. That's the three interpretive issues. That's a quick kind of high-level overview uh, as, as well as the themes. Next week we'll talk through 2 Samuel, which does have the Davidic covenant and the formalization of God's promise to David to be the king, the line, that he will work out his promises and his purposes through, even though it was wicked for Israel to ask for that. All right, with that we'll pray and we will be dismissed. Lord, I thank you especially for your grace. We might not think of 1 Samuel as a book about grace, but this is, especially chapter 12, uh, in what you do in response to the wicked request of Israel, which again is no different from us. Ultimately, we are all base, we're all selfish, we're all carnal, we're all fallen. Uh, and so we are similar, but this wicked request, God, uh, after you had done so much, after you had shown your miracles, after you had delivered uh, the people from the oppression of the Philistines by earthquakes and mighty wonders, to ask for a king, to reject you, was a wicked request. And you showed them that through granting them Saul, but more than that, God, you showed them grace. Uh, you came, you revealed yourself, you manifested yourself in power, and you expressed grace to a people who had rejected you. And so we see that is, a, that is who you are. You uh, continue to go deeper, to go under uh, the, the base and vile and wicked behavior of your creation to the point that ultimately uh, you raise us up to be part of your family. And so we see that in this story we see it more clearly in uh, the killing of Christ uh, and what you've done in uh, raising him from the dead and bringing Gentiles into your family. Just every story in the Bible is so much, Father, about your grace. And so we praise you for that. We thank you for it. And we look forward to the day and ask that you keep us to that day, especially as we think about David's teaching in Philippians this morning, that you would keep us as one, as a, as a group, as a church body to that day that we do receive that gift of, a, of being free from sin and being uh, truly glorified with you and uh, enjoying you forever. Thank you for those promises. Help us to re make us remain faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.